Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Today I'm talking to Kirsty. When Kirsty was a child, she had a near-death experience and lived to tell her story. Hi, Kirsty. Tell us Hi, what Shirley. happened. Okay, well, we're going back a few years now, but I was 12 years old. I'd just had my 12th birthday, and I was a competitive gymnast, so I was very active, very involved in life, and just all over the place, heaps of energy. Um, there was one day, and I felt a little bit tired on this day, which was quite unusual for me. And I can remember thinking, oh, I'll just get an early night. I have a gym competition coming up at the weekend. I'll go and get an early night and hopefully I'll feel better the next day. So I did exactly that. I had an early night and I went off to sleep oblivious that anything was about to change. It was just a normal evening for me. And then I woke up in the night. It would have been a couple of hours later. And by that stage, everyone else had gone to bed. The house was pretty quiet and dark. And I was just overcome by this pain in my head and so it was the most extreme pain I felt it was a very specific pain I could pinpoint exactly where it was and I can remember lying in the bed just thinking I've got this headache and this is just really not good and then um, there's a lot of detail I could go into there but basically I didn't feel so well so I tried to get out of bed and I collapsed on the floor, and I thought that's a very, very strange thing to do. And it was that my body wasn't working. So I was on a heap on the floor and really unsure what was going on, but just really overwhelmed by this pain in my head. So my mother eventually heard me banging around on the floor. She came in, and then fast forward to the next day, I seemed to have gone into some kind of very deep sleep. I'd I'm not sure 100% whether it was a coma or not, but the, my parents couldn't wake me up at all. So it came to school time. I was usually up really early bouncing around the house and making lots of noise because that's the type of kid that I was. And my parents couldn't wake me up at all. I just wasn't stirring at all. So they phoned the doctor and then um, they didn't want to move me or take me anywhere. So the doctor ended up coming to the house because that seemed like the obvious thing to do. So the doctor came round to the house and then he couldn't wake me up either. And he, you know, looked for my vital signs and took my, I don't know what he took, I guess, um, checked a heart rate and blood pressure and temperature and all of these things that they do. And then he just went into a bit of a state of panic and said, we need to get her to the hospital. So they phoned an ambulance and they were trying to get a helicopter for me, but it was actually booked out because it just seemed very urgent to get me to a hospital. Eventually the ambulance came, they got me off to the hospital and rushed me straight in for some scans and then in for brain surgery. So what had happened to me in the night was that 
I had an AVM on my brain, so that's an arterial venous malformation, which in everyday language means that basically before I was born, my brain hadn't formed correctly. It's a little bit like if somebody's born and they've got a deformed arm or a hand or they're missing a finger or, you know, all of these fun things that can happen. Mine just happened to be in my brain and obviously you can't see it because we've got our skull over our brain. So what can happen with this is the blood vessels being a little bit abnormal meant that the blood flow could get restricted. And so I'd never known whether that's done that before, but in this particular time, the blood flow got restricted so much that it built up a whole lot of pressure, and then that pressure caused the brain to burst, the blood vessels to burst, and then start to bleed. So I had a brain bleed, a brain hemorrhage. And as a result of that, I was, I believe, instantly paralyzed down the left side of my body. Because when I tried to get up to go to the bathroom, when I had the headache in the house, when I collapsed on the floor, it was my left side that didn't work and I couldn't feel it and I couldn't stand up. So I believe because of the bleeding, I was instantly paralyzed. So I had a massive stroke as well to go alongside with the bleeding on the brain. And they rushed me into this emergency surgery. They could identify the problem and they were trying to remove the affected area, the affected blood vessels, and just to get it to stop bleeding and fix up my brain, basically. And that's when I flatlined on the operating table. And so I can imagine there was probably a little bit of a panic there. They got me back and had another attempt to try and get me, get this part removed and get my brain fixed up. And I flatlined again. And it was at this point that they realized just how serious it was and that they couldn't keep operating on me. It was due to the location of where the AVM was on the brain. It wasn't something quite easy to get to. It was quite deep within the brain. So they ended up to abort the surgery. They got me to a position where I was stable enough. You know, I wasn't in a great place, but I was stable enough. And then they said, okay, when she recovers from the surgery that she's had, that's when we'll address the issue. So we'll just get her stable, keep her alive, because it was way too risky to keep going. And then that's when I woke up from everything. It was, I think, about five days later. I have to be 100 I'm not 100% sure. I need to check the medical notes for that. But it was about five days later that I woke up in the critical care unit here in Auckland, so in Auckland Hospital. And... I woke up and there were tubes everywhere and there were nurses coming in and they were trying to tell me that I'd been really unwell and that it was all a bit of a panic and just to relax and everything was going to be okay. But the interesting thing was that I already knew it was going to be okay. I knew exactly what had happened to me and I knew that everything was perfect for my life despite the fact that I was lying there with a huge big surgical scar. They had aborted the surgery so the problem was there. I was paralysed. Yep, there were so many reasons for me to believe that life wasn't okay. But I had this very deep um, underlying feeling that everything was exactly as it should have been. So when I had, when I was having the surgery, at some point, either in that time of flatline or in the coma afterwards, I did have this experience, which was very unusual, where I believe that I came out of my body and I was in a place of absolute nothingness. Some people would say it's a void. There's a technical term that they use in their death experience research called the void. And there literally is nothing there. There's no sound. There's no quiet. There's no light. There's no dark. It's just an emptiness. 
And I remember being there and very confused, very disconnected to my own body, struggling to get awareness of where I was or where my body was. And my father's voice was asking me to squeeze his hand and let him know that I'd be okay. And that went on for a little while. I won't give you the full story here, but that went on for a while. Basically, I got to get a little bit of movement somehow. And then there was this booming, silent white light. So, again, a booming, silent white light. How The words can't even give it justice. What I experienced, you cannot put into words. But I found myself in this beautiful place with white light all around me, and there were beings there, and there was singing and celebration and music, and it was just the most glorious feeling, something that I've never experienced ever since or before that time. So it was a very one-off occasion. It was just absolutely amazing. And I would think I was trying to work out where I was. I was trying to understand who these people were around me because they were celebrating and cheering and they were welcoming, welcoming me home. That's what it felt like. It felt familiar. It felt like I'd come home and everybody knew who I was and it was a big welcome just for me. So I remember just basking in this thinking, this is great. I love this. And trying to understand who these people were. And then the next thing I know is when I was waking up in the critical care unit. So I'd had this experience. I knew that my life was going to be great. I knew there were hard times ahead of me, that it wouldn't be smooth sailing. But I also had this very overwhelming feeling that life was perfect. And that's where, I guess, a lot of my spiritual journey has started from. Um, Up until that point, I didn't really have any spiritual background. I was raised in a completely non-believing family. It hadn't been a part of my childhood. I was only 12 years old, so I didn't really have a huge worldview or strong beliefs in anything, really. I was very young. And then I started on the journey of learning how to walk and how to talk and how to live life again, I suppose, get back into society and how to do everyday things that we tend to take for granted. So I feel very, very lucky to be here. Um, I've had this most amazing experience. There's also been quite a lot of, I guess, learning journey and things that I've had to go through since, but I do feel very, very, I don't know the word, I guess I'd say blessed that it happened to me. I feel very lucky. Did you tell anybody about this experience that you'd had? I didn't because I thought that it was a bit crazy and my first thought was, Oh, that just happened. My dad just asked me whether I'd be okay because he was sitting beside my bedside. And I tried to rationalise everything that happened. And so I could rationalise that part of it, that sure, he squeezed my hand, which is kind of what you do when someone's, a loved one's unwell and you're trying to get them back. But the white light and the angels, I cannot explain. And the feeling was so real. It was so different to what things feel like here. And then also I had some very unusual knowledge. When I came back, I could see things happening at the same time in different places. Like I said, I had this knowledge that everything would be okay. I knew what had happened. And it turns out that my father hadn't been at my bedside. It was too difficult for him to see me like that. He stayed outside in more of like the waiting room areas. And it was one of our family friends who went in and sat beside me and talked to me and held my hand. So when I asked my father about that, He said, oh, no, no, but do you remember the other person that went in? And do you remember all the stories that she told you? And I've got no memory of it. So I didn't tell anyone for quite a while because I thought 
it was just a slip of the mind. And obviously, I've just had brain surgery, so I really questioned how sane I was. I questioned whether maybe I was a little bit crazy now. And, yeah, I yeah, I didn't really want to talk about it. It was something so significant that I didn't really want to go, hey, by the way, I had this experience. But it was very clear to me very early on. My father said to me very early on that they'd lost me twice and I was really lucky to be there. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm so lucky to be here. And because I still had all of the issues in my brain that hadn't fixed the problem, there was still the ongoing question about whether they would try and operate at a later time or what we would do. So I knew that um, things, you know, that we had to go through some stuff. And so I didn't talk about it. I just kind of held on to that experience. But it did become very clear that it was an extremely close call. And I think it was probably quite a while later that I connected the dots that the close call actually was this experience that that happened um, at that time. I had no knowledge. I was 12 years old. had no knowledge of a near-death experience. I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. They weren't really talked about back then and, you know, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all the information that we have these days. So I actually, it was when I heard a story from someone else who had a similar experience that I thought, oh, that's a little bit like what I had. And the memory just, you know, not that it left me, but I really went back to that memory of the experience itself and thought that must be what I had. I had a near-death experience. And it makes sense, like the timeline makes sense. Even in my medical notes, it talks about them resuscitating me. So it was very, very close. I expect that my experience was probably quite brief. You know, I've done a lot of research in this field and I interview a lot of people who've had these experiences and I think, wow, I had a really brief one compared to what some people get. But nonetheless, you know, I do think that it was very real. It did happen and... I didn't really talk about it because I was afraid of being criticised or told it didn't happen or, oh gee, it's, it's a lot to process. And I was going through a lot physically. There was quite a lot to deal with physically. So I thought why, you know, it seems a lot easier to push that under the rug and not think about it. So what encouraged so, no. you to speak about it publicly in the way that you now do? Yeah, well, the funny thing was that I always knew that I would. I always knew that I'd write a story, I'd write a book about my experience, and I always knew I'd write a book about my life. And I couldn't cope with the experience because I just wanted to be a a normal kid. I, you know, it was quite a long time before I could get back into things. I had a lot of time off school, and then I ended up having to fly to the UK for some radiation therapy, which was very, very early on in um, the development of this type of therapy because it wasn't available here in New Zealand but I still had this problem so they decided that it was too dangerous to actually operate again that I wouldn't survive another operation so they put me forward for this I don't want to say it's experimental but it was quite early in the stages of it um, for this therapy which was over in the UK and I ended up going and having that and so this journey was all about just getting through I I then started high school and at 13 I thought great nobody knows my experience nobody knows what's happened to me they know that I don't do a lot of things I don't do PE I don't do sport that I walk funny Um, and then I ended up having most of my third form year when I was 13 had most of that off school because I ended up having to go have this treatment and then all sorts of other things came up 
So I always knew that I had this story in me that I'd write this book. And it was when I eventually wrote the book, this was 27 years later, that I really felt like I couldn't contain it. I couldn't keep the story in anymore. It had to come out. I had to be real and authentic to myself because I was facing a daily battle because it affects me daily. Um, and I just needed to get this out there. I needed to almost, it felt like I needed to come clean or come out or something like that. So I started to write the book and it ended up being that I went away and I wrote most of the book in one weekend because I just held it in for so long and I knew that I couldn't go through this process at home. So I said to my husband, can I go away and do this? And I went away for a weekend and it just came out. It was a really messy, emotional experience. But I got the book out and then once I'd written the draft, I thought, well, I need to tell my family what's in this. So I talked to my family and said, hey, you know, I, I did have this experience and this is going to be in the book. They knew that I was writing a book. And then I guess when the book came out, that's when the experience came out. And so then I was quite public with it. And that's where people started to ask me a lot of questions about it. People wanted to do some interviews like you're doing now. As more people read the book, you know, less and less could I hold it in. Could I pretend that I hadn't written about it? And now it's just a very public part of my life, I suppose. And I'm actually completely okay with that, despite holding it in for so many years. I've got a really great piece and I'm in a really great place with just being open about the journey that I've been on. Tell me then about how the near-death experience gave you a sense of purpose. Oh, gee, it so did. So I came back with, I was rearing to go, even with tubes in me and everything. I, I knew that I had this enormous purpose because you can't go that close to death and not question, well, why didn't I die? Why didn't I come? Why did I come back? So I woke up from that coma with just this overwhelming sense of I've got something to do and it's really important because if I didn't, then I wouldn't have come back. I would have died on that table. And so I've, I've spent a lot of time trying to work out what that purpose is. And it meant that I've been very into everything that I've done. I've done a lot of different things and I've given my heart and soul into so many things. I'm very gung-ho. I would just go for it and I would push, push, push. And then I'd get an idea, oh, maybe this thing over here is my real purpose. And then I go over there and I do the same thing, push really hard and, you know, give it a lot. And then something else crops up. Ah, oh, well, maybe now this is my purpose. And so I spend a lot of time following things and pursuing viewing things very heavily I still don't have a great sense of what that particular purpose is but I just know that I need to live a very full life and I need to embrace life and I feel very lucky to be here and um, if I you know I don't want to end up not fulfilling the purpose that I came back to do so I, I try and give my all to everything I think so much of it comes back to being kind and being a loving person you know I love to treat people as well as I can that's part of my goal is just to make the world a better place and so yes a very strong sense of purpose which is quite common with near-death experiences knowing what it is is a whole different item entirely I think. Now one of the things you do is you have your own podcast in which you interview other people who've had near-death experiences. Exactly and a lot of them go through the same or a similar journey to what I went through about having to come out with that story. Some people are seasoned 
they've done a lot of interviews, you know, their story's been out there for a very long time. But quite a few people, it's their first time when they talk to me. So I do have the podcast, Let's Talk Near Death. And that's where I interview experiences from all over the world. And it's been a really beautiful thing for me. It's my favourite part of what I do is doing these interviews because I've just met the most amazing people. I've heard the most incredible stories and testimonials of, you know, these experiences which are really mind-blowing. But also I've been able to research it and see the themes that come through what what's the underlying themes across all of the different experiences that happen and, you know, how they play a part in life afterwards once the recovery's done. Some people, you know, there is quite a long element of physical trauma. Other people, they're straight back into life. So amazing research that I've been doing and I just so enjoy connecting and hearing these stories. So if people listening to you now wanted to hear those stories, how do they access your podcast? Well, the podcast is all over on all of the different platforms. It's called Let's Talk Near Death, so it's up on the Apple Podcasts and iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's, gosh, all of them, Google Play. It's all over the, the internet, or they can go direct to my website, which is kirstysalisbury.com, and they can listen to them through there and on YouTube as well. I've got the video version on YouTube. Well, Kirsty, I think this is a conversation we're going to have to continue because there's a lot more that I'd like to discuss with you but I want to thank you for talking about your near-death experience because many people who have them fear that they will be disbelieved seen as demonic psychologically unstable or have Mm. their experience minimized so thank you Mm. so much for being brave enough to talk about your experience because by doing that you give other people the license to speak about theirs Mm, exactly and I hope that that's how it works yeah thank you for giving me the place to be able to share that it's my pleasure you've been listening to the final curtain ordinary new zealanders telling their stories about death podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app at death cafe dunedin the conversation continues You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Café Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times. Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.